attention and incline your ear, forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty. Because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a present. The rich among the people will seek your favor. The king's daughter is all glorious within her chamber. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. The place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall set them up as princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered from generation to generation. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to gather together to sing praises to your holy name, to be changed and conformed and transformed by your holy and inspired and fallible inerrant word. We pray that that's what would happen this morning. Change hearts through this text. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You can be seated. <clears throat> well, there are not many more joyous occasions in life than that of a wedding. Uh, sure, graduations, buying a home, births of children, these things are exciting and certainly worthy of celebration. But a wedding, a wedding is unique. It's almost as if in those final moments leading up to the bride and the groom exchanging their vows, exchanging the ring, saying I do. Uh, in the brief moment, in that brief moment, our focus on the struggles of everyday life is put on hold. As our gaze is fixed upon something very special, something very sacred, something very solemn even. A God-instituted, God-ordained union between one man and one woman manifested in a lovely and wonderful ceremony where God himself is at the center it's really unlike anything else in all of creation. And we get to see a picture of that this morning in the 45th Psalm. As we are giving a glimpse into a wedding, a wedding ceremony. But this is no ordinary wedding, my brothers and sisters. Oh no, this is a royal wedding. As we'll see, a divine wedding. So let's just dive right in here. It'll be helpful to follow along in your outline uh, if you have those this morning. As you'll see, there are several layers to this wedding and several layers to this psalm, both in a historical and a future sense. Look at me first with the superscription, if you would. Again, we are told that this is for the choir director, very appropriate this morning, according to the Shoshanim of the sons of Korah, a masculine, a song of love. Here we see this is for temple worship. And it's a tune to be sung to Shoshanim, which literally reads, to the tune of lilies. I don't know what that tune is exactly, but we'll see it in Psalm 69 as well as Psalm 80 as well. I'm sure it's very beautiful. And this is a love song. But this is no old mushy-gushy, sappy-happy, cheesy, and even sleazy, sleazy ballad that we're accustomed to hearing on the radio today. This is a didactic love song. It's a masculine. It's got substance. It's got depth. It's theologically rich. It's doctrinally sound. It's a divinely saturated love song written by the very source of love himself. Sure, recorded by a human author, but an inspired author, an author whose pen is under con complete control of 
and complete subjection to the very spirit of the living God. All scripture, including this one before us, is breathed out by God himself. So it only makes sense that this text would ultimately be a song about his love and about his lovely character, right? I was glad to hear the choir leading us in such songs uh, earlier this morning, and I'm looking forward to hearing you guys again here shortly, uh, because such didactic compositions are desperately needed in the American church today. James Boyce said the same thing over 20 years ago. I've quoted this before. He said this, The great hymns of the church are on the way out. They are not gone entirely, but they are going, and in their place have come trite jingles that have more in common with contemporary advertising ditties than the psalms. The problem here is not so much the style of the music, though trite words fit best with trite tunes and harmonies. Rather, it's with the content of the song. The old hymns express the theology of the Bible in profound and perceptive ways and with winsome and memorable language. Today's songs are focused on ourselves. They reflect our shallow or non-existent theology and do almost nothing to elevate our thoughts about God. Worst of all, songs that, uh, worst of all are songs that merely repeat a trite idea, word, or phrase over and over again. Again, this is over 20 years ago he's saying this. Songs like this are not worship, though they may give the churchgoer a religious feeling. They're mantras, which belong more in a gathering of new agers than among the worshiping people of God. We see that, right? Psalm 45, though, is no ordinary love song. It's no surface-level repetitious mantra whose aim it is solely to play on the emotions of its hearers. No, no. As we'll see, this is a song of love, uh, and it's of God, to be sung in the temple of God. Again, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God himself. And the psalmist, he recognizes the weight of this co-authorship here. Notice what he writes in verse 1. He says, my heart overflows with a good theme. Of course it does. He's been assigned a great theme, the theme of themes, the best of themes, a theme which transcends time itself as he sits in his quarters and he writes these words which have implications not only for uh, this particular wedding at this particular time in history, but eternal implications, everlasting significance for its hearers, even for us this morning. These words are just as significant for all of us seated here this morning as we hear them. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, he's able to recognize the significance of his theme as he essentially says, writer's block is not an obstacle for me, okay? In fact, I can't stop writing. I can't get my quill to the papyrus fast enough here. My my finiteness, my physical body are the only limitations that's holding me back from recording my thoughts, from recording my praise and adoration. And who is the object of this adoration? Why, it's none other than the king. Look at verse 2. He says, My heart overflows with a good theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is the pen of a skillful scribe. And then he begins his address. We begin point two in our outline. 
You'll notice here that we'll have a, we have an outline within an outline, and I put this outline within an outline after point two because I want us first to look at the immediate thoughts of the man sitting at his desk and writing this, okay? The immediate historical context. There's a wedding. There's a royal wedding. Some king in Israel or Persia or some other area in that time is getting married, and he's been tasked with writing a love song for the ceremony. But here's the thing. Nobody knows who this earthly king is. Even today, some scholars ask, is this Solomon? Is this about Solomon and the princess of Egypt? Is this about Solomon and the princess of Tyre? Well, I don't know. Solomon wasn't much of a warrior. If you look in verse 5, it describes a warrior. So maybe it's David. He's more of a warrior type. But which marriage are we talking about here? And Did David always act in righteousness all the time? Was his splendor and majesty always on display? Well, no. Well, maybe it's about some other king in that time period that we just don't know about. Well, we just don't know. We can't say. Nobody can say for sure, which is interesting. As we're told in verse 17, that the peoples will give this king thanks forever and ever. We don't even know who it is. Well, let's see what the psalmist says of this king in the historical sense. If there was a temporal earthly king who was getting married, which there very likely was, what did the psalmist write of him? Well, first he says in verse 2, you are fairer than the sons of men. The greatest among all humans, the top of the top in terms of both appearance and character. No one greater in all of creation than this king according to the divinely inspired psalmist, right? That's pretty high praise from the Holy Spirit of God. The psalmist continues, Grace is poured out upon your lips, therefore God has blessed you forever. God has enriched you. God has lavished his goodness and grace upon you, which in turn has caused you to be gracious. And gracious in speech, O king, and you are majestic. You are oh so majestic, verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one. In your splendor and your majesty, and in your majesty ride on victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome things. In those days, like many weddings today, it was common for the groom to dress in his full military attire with swords strapped firmly to his thigh. He is a commander of many. He's a hero to many. And his wedding day doesn't excuse him from his duty as a protector. In fact, uh, wearing this uniform in such a setting only solidifies and demonstrates the reality of his God-ordained role to protect his wife. The psalmist expands this thought through verse 5. Your arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under you. Your arrows are in the heart of the king's enemies. He's a conqueror. He's a victor. He is triumphant as his cause is truth, meekness, righteousness. He fights for what is good. He fights for what is holy. His enemies tremble before him because his aim is sure. He does not miss. He always hits his target. And therefore, the people, entire nations of unrighteous men and women fall under his might. And this is all recognized by the psalmist as the king prepares for this wedding ceremony, the ceremony which is described in more detail in verses 8 and 9. But before that, we come to the central point in this psalm. Okay, You have to pay attention. 
Pay attention here. Notice what they say. Still addressing the king, right? The psalmist is addressing the king. Look at this. Verse 6. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, some commentators, even some translators, have tried to soften this verse by saying that the word God there is should be changed to the word divine. So this would read, your divine throne is forever and ever, making the throne itself divine, symbolically speaking. Or your throne is like God's throne, or your throne is God's forever and ever. But as we will soon see, this is not what this text says. It's not what the original Hebrews said, and it's not what the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the Old Testament said. Those scribes were faithful to the original and kept it the way it was. This says, in address to the king, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. That's a great translation. It's a faithful translation. Then look at verse 7. Still in exaltation and adoration of the king's character, but with another shocking declaration here. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Again, the psalmist extolling the noble character of this king. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy above your companions. So don't miss this now. First, the psalmist, under divine inspiration, no less, calls this king God. Then he says to this God king, therefore God, your God, has anointed you. He gave you the throne. He gave you the scepter, the power, the grace. He has anointed you. He has set you apart for a special task, a divine task, and he has anointed you with an abundance of joy above everyone else here upon your wedding day. It's very interesting, very telling verses here. More on them in a minute. But first, verse 8. All your garments are fragrant, fragrant with myrrh and aloes and cassia. Out of ivory palaces, stringed instruments have made you glad. King's daughters are among your noble ladies. At your right hand stands the queen in gold from Ophir. This is the splendor of the wedding ceremony. As the king puts on his wedding attire, he is adorned with sweet-smelling fragrances, spices, along with oil, maybe a nice harp or other stringed instrument playing in the back, uh, all bouncing off the walls of ivory and furnishings of ivory. This was very elegant. This was a very extravagant occasion in the life of the king, who was really the focal point of the, mar- of the wedding, by the way. It's not like today where the bride is the center of attention. I'm not saying we're jealous or anything here, but uh, <laughs> you know we do have uh, tremendous responsibilities on this day. We keep the ring, right? We... Rent the tuxes. We have to show up on time. These things are pretty weighty. Back then, uh, especially in a royal wedding, the groom was really given the honor. The bride was still a central part of it, but the groom, especially a royal groom, was the focus. In fact, there are a number of differences between the weddings of today and the weddings of the time of this writing, the time of this psalm. Uh, For instance, there was the betrothal. Okay, this was like the engagement, but in a more formal sense. It wasn't just a guy getting down on one knee, giving a girl a ring, asking her to marry him, and putting a picture on social media with the hashtag, she said yes. (laughs) 
This was a binding contract. They were technically married here. Here's a pen. All right, sign here. You're getting married. You're signing a contract today. And they both signed off. Both sets of parents signed off. A dowry was typically exchanged. Really, two entire families, sometimes countries, were being brought together here. So this is very important. This is a very big deal. This is why Joseph got so upset when he found out Mary got pregnant during this phase. They were already technically married. Uh, Everyone knew it. But they hadn't gone through the ceremony. They hadn't consummated the marriage yet, right? She She would have been disgraced if they found out she was pregnant without this process. That's, that's how binding it was. This is a very important part of the process. And then after the time of the betrothal, the formalities would begin and the guests would be invited. Just before the wedding, there were festivities, there were celebrations, there was eating and drinking and dancing and fellowship. This could last up to a couple of weeks. Uh, the more prominent the groom was, the longer these festivities went. And as a dad myself, the first thing I got to ask is, I wonder how much this all costs. <laughs> that had to be super expensive, celebrating for a couple of weeks. But remember, this is a royal wedding, so, celebrate, uh, so, so cost is no issue here, the celebration. That's the first phase, okay? Betrothal, contract, invitation. Next was the presentation of the, vi- of the bride. While the groom was the center of the wedding celebrations, it was customary for the groom and the friend of the groom, otherwise known as the best man, kind of, to actually go get his soon-to-be wife from another location, likely her father's house. They would go and they would get her and her maidens and bring them back to the place of the festivities where he would take her around to each person, showing off his bride before the gathered guests. Which then, of course, led to the ceremony and the exchanging of vows. One writer said at this point, the friend of the bridegroom would then take the hand of the bride, clasp it into the hand of the groom. They would say their final vows, and hope, hopefully all the guests would leave. In fact, the friend of the bridegroom would make sure they left. Then the marriage would be consummated, and there would be further celebration. End quote. That's what we're seeing here in Psalm 45. The king has been anointed, appointed. He has clothed himself with the grace, joy, righteousness of his God, and now he's ready to go get his bride to begin the festivities. The bride who waits, waits for her king. His bride whom the psalmist then speaks to in somewhat of a fatherly manner. Look at this. It's almost as if he walks over to the next house or the next room He extols his king and he walks over and he provides comfort to the beautiful bride. Look at verse 10 where he says this. Listen, O daughter. Give attention and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house. Then the king will desire your beauty because because he is your Lord, bow down to him. The daughter of Tyre will come with a present. The rich among the people will seek your favor. He assures her, again, comforts her by saying, it's time to leave and cleave. Don't look back, look forward. I promise you that what awaits you will be worth forsaking your old manner of life. Forget your past, look to the future. Show allegiance to the king and your king will desire your beauty. This goes way beyond physical beauty, by the way. He will desire her willing submission as she knows, this is very important here, as she knows that he loves her. 
he will give himself up for her. As one commentator noted, if a marriage union is to endure, the husband must express his love to his wife by tenderly cherishing her as a part of his own body, by considerateness, sharing all the goodness of God in this life with her. The psalmist essentially says to this bride, trust me, the future is bright for you because of the, of the character of the king and his sacrificial love for you. In verse 13, he tells the great assembly in the temple, he tells the reader, he tells all of us here today, the king's daughter is glorious within her chamber. Her clothing is interwoven with gold. She will be led to the king in embroidered work. The virgins, her companions who follow her, will be brought to you. They will be led forth with gladness and rejoicing. They will enter into the king's palace. This is the procession. Here comes the bride, right? In all her beauty and all her glory, fabric intertwined with gold. This is real gold. She will be brought to you, O king. Just like in Genesis 2, right? Yahweh, God, fashioned the rib which he had taken from the man into a woman. And he brought her to the man. He brought the woman and presented her to the man. And here he brings her sovereignly right into your palace, O great king, with all gladness, all rejoicing. So long for this moment, O favored bride. Anticipate this moment. He's coming. Your king is coming. This is a beautiful picture of assurance from the psalmist. Right? The comforting words uh, to this waiting daughter reminds me of the story of a bride who was so nervous she just knew she would faint walking down the aisle. Her dad leaned over and gave her some quick advice. The key, he said, was concentration. He said, when we start out, just focus on the aisle. As you get halfway down the aisle, focus on the altar, and when you get near the front, focus on him. The moment arrived and she began to walk down the rose-petaled path. But people were a bit startled when she passed by their pew because she was muttering under her breath, I'll alter him. I'll alter him. I'll alter him. Thanks. Right. Well, thankfully, none of us men in here needed any altering, did we? Just kidding, of course. Well, we know this for sure based on the Words of this psalm so far, and even the final benediction in verses 16 and 17, we know this king didn't need to be altered in any way, right? Why not? Because the king presented here in Psalm 45 is the perfect king, which is why in its historical context, it's thought to be an idealization of the current king of Israel. As some have said, uh, mere court flattery, O king, live forever type of stuff, you know? But guess what? The Holy Spirit isn't in the faux flattery business, is he? And he's the one who authored this text through the psalmist. So in light of verses 6 and 7, as well as the benediction in verses 16 and 17, ask yourself, what in the world are we talking about? Or better yet, who are we talking about here? Verse 16, in, the place, in place of your fathers will be your sons. You shall set them up as princes in all the earth. Verse 17, I will cause your name to be remembered from generation to every generation. Therefore, the peoples will give you thanks forever and ever. 
I will cause your name to be remembered from generation to generation. Who is this king again? Solomon, David, a, a king of Persia, even a, a, the wedding of King Ahab and Jezebel, have, as some have, have so foolishly suggested. We don't even know the king who this was originally written to. We don't know. You can't tell me. And no commentator could tell me for certain either. But, but guess who does tell us the king's true identity? The scriptures. Okay? S. Lewis Johnson used to tell his students, who do you think really understands the Old Testament scriptures the best, modern commentators or the apostles and our Lord? Well, let's see what they say. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews chapter 1. It's here that we'll find the true identity of this king. Hebrews chapter 1. Look at verse 8 real quick, okay? But of the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That's familiar language, isn't it? Well, we better read this in context just so we're sure who the Son is. Back at verse 1, okay? God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days spoke to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he had also made the worlds, who is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power, who, having accomplished cleansing for sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when, he again bring the, and when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. Of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers flaming fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness, hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. Well, now this makes all the sense in the world. Psalm 45 is no mere idealization of an earthly king. It's far from court flattery. What we see here and why the psalmist's heart was overflowing because of this good theme is that he was painting a picture of one who was to come into, into the world. And he was writing about one who was coming to reign, a one who is greater than Solomon, who is greater than David, though a descendant of David, the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, a covenant which the psalmist would have been absolutely f familiar with as it spoke of the one who was to come, the anointed, the Messiah, the Savior of Israel. And your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. 
God told David, your throne shall be established forever. So ultimately, this can't be speaking of Solomon. Solomon is dead. It can't be speaking of David. David died. Peter said the same thing at Pentecost, right? Men, brothers, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put all your enemies under your, foot, uh, under your feet as a footstool, or until I put your enemies as a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Who? This Jesus whom you have crucified. This Jesus who is not dead, but alive. He was raised from the dead. He ascended back to the right hand of the Father where he's currently ruling and reigning from on high in the hearts of those who belong to him. This is a a messianic psalm. This is a a royal psalm. This is a divine love song which looks forward to the coming king, the king of kings, the perfect kings, the God king. This is a love song of the divine bridegroom, the the Lord Jesus Christ. Son of God is confirmed in Hebrews chapter 1. Again, it makes perfect sense when you look back. You are fairer than the sons of men. Truly God, yes, but he's also truly man, the most excellent of men who never sinned, who never strayed to the right or the left of his father's will, who never deviated from the law of his God. Mary, don't cling to me. I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go, and go to my brothers and say to them, I ascend to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. Grace is poured out upon his lips. Luke said in the fourth chapter of his gospel, all were speaking well of him and marveling at the gracious words which were coming forth from his lips. John said, even those who were going to seize him to bring him to the wicked rulers of Israel recognized this gracious speech. The Pharisee says, why did you not bring him in? The officer's answer, never has a man spoken like this. There's nobody who speaks like this. We're not going to arrest him. He's fairer than all men. Grace is upon his lips. Therefore, God has blessed him, not just for a season, not just for a term, not just for a brief period of time in which the kingdom controlled the region, not even for a whole lifetime, but for how long? Forever and ever. As he loves righteousness, as he hates wickedness. Spurgeon said, Christ is not neutral in the great contest between right and wrong. As warmly as he loves the one, he abhors the other. This is the messianic realization that the psalmist looked forward to that we can look back upon. As as the Son of God came at first, exercising authority in the spiritual sense, setting men and women free from the bondage of their own sin nature to their bondage to Satan, death, who rescued them from the slave market of sin, redeeming them and reconciling them to the Father through his sacrificial death, burial, and resurrection. His arrows are sharp. The peoples fall under him. He will strike true, not only in the physical defeat of his enemies and in the second coming and his establishment of the earthly reign, but in the meantime by the convicting arrows of his spirit 
which pierce through and convict the hearts of those whom he has called to himself, the redeemed, the faithful, his bride, the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles. Those whom the Father brought to him, those whom he will one day present before the Father and present before the whole heavenly host, those who now, even now, say along with the psalmist, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Jesus Christ is the bridegroom. He is coming again for his bride. And he is worthy to be praised. He's worthy of our singing. He's worthy of our adoration. He is altogether good. He is altogether beautiful. He's altogether lovely. He is altogether righteous and perfect and pure and merciful and selfless. Oh, how he loves his bride. Paul tells husbands to love your wives just as Christ loved the church, gave himself up for her. He gave himself up for us. And therefore, we, his bride, should be waiting with eager expectation for his arrival, for that moment when he comes to take us to be with him, to celebrate and adore him forever and ever, knowing it will take all of eternity to recognize, recognize and revel in his splendor and his majesty. Again, Spurgeon said, Our precious Christ can never be made too much of. Heaven itself is but just good enough for him. All the pomp that angels and archangels and thrones and dominions and principalities and powers can pour at his feet is too little for him. Only his own essential glory is such as fully answers to the desires of his people who can never enough extol him. But we will my brothers and sisters. We will extol his name forevermore if we belong to him. We will celebrate with him and we will feast. We will feast as he removes the dross from our souls at his judgment seat, not condemning us for sin. He's not judging our sin. Our sin was paid for in full at the cross at Calvary, not condemning us, but purifying us as all the worthless, useless things of our life is, is melted away before we are presented completely holy and blameless before the Father and all of heaven and brought to the great supper, which he references, which is referenced in Revelation 19. John says in Revelation 19, Then I heard something like the voice of a great crowd and like the sound of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. and His bride has made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Write, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. My brothers and sisters, heaven is described as a meal with Jesus. Divine inspiration tells us that heaven is like a grand wedding feast, joyous relief and celebration for all of eternity. Unfettered, eternal joy awaits. Why? Because the dwelling place of God is now with man. That's what makes heaven so great, you see. That's what makes heaven heaven. And that's why we should long for it like nothing else in life. 
Not because we will have all of our suppressed sinful passions satisfied, but because we will have no sinful passions. Heaven is heaven because our king is there. And our only passion will be to bring glory to his name forevermore. A passion which compounds and increases over years and years. Passions which are actually satisfied, by the way. Uh, like, the, like the best meal you've ever had, but in a complete and everlasting sense. Full satisfaction. That's the believer's anticipation. As we will celebrate all the way through the second coming of Christ through the millennial reign and await the final consummation as we are with him forevermore in the new heavens on the new earth in the new Jerusalem. My brothers and sisters, this is not our home. Thank God. As wonderful as some experiences are in this life, this world leaves us wanting. And even as believers, we groan inwardly waiting for that day when the bridegroom will come, which is imminent. He could literally come at any moment. So I would ask, do you belong to him? Are you one of his? Are you one of the redeemed? Is this a song of love that describes the love that your king has for you? Will you be at the supper? Will you be presented to the Father as the perfectly pure, spotless, holy, and blameless bride washed clean in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God? You can know today. If you're not absolutely sure, you can be. He's extending this offer and this invitation to you even this morning. By his amazing grace alone, by faith alone in the glorious gospel of his son, but you must respond to the invitation. And you will respond one way or the other. You're going to give him a response. Jesus once compared the kingdom of God to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who who had been called to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been called, Behold, I have prepared my dinner. My oxen, my fat and livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But Jesus said they paid no attention. They went their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. But the king was enraged. He sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their cities on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who are called are not worthy. Go, therefore, to the main highways, and as many as you can find there, call them to the wedding feast. Those slaves went out into the streets, and they gathered together all they found, both evil and good. The wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. You may have heard the story of a couple from Boston that were engaged to be married. This is a true story. Uh, They went downtown to the Hyatt Hotel to order what was supposed to be their wedding banquet. They looked over the menu. They made selections of china and silver. They pointed to the pictures of flower arrangements that they liked. And the bill came to about $13,000, with which inflation today, it's probably about $30,000, $40,000. After leaving a check for half that amount as the down payment, the couple went home to flip through the books of the wedding announcements. The day the announcements were supposed to hit the mailbox, however, the potential groom got cold feet. 
I'm just not sure, he said. This is a big commitment. Let's think about this for a little bit longer. And he broke it off with his fiancée. Well, when his angry fiancé returned to the Hyatt to cancel the banquet, the events manager could not have been more understanding. The same thing happened to me, honey, she said. And she told the story of her own broken engagement. But about the refund, she had some bad news. She said, the contract is binding. You're only entitled to getting $1,300 back. So you have two options. You can forfeit the rest of the down payment, which was thousands of dollars, or go ahead with the banquet. I'm sorry, honey, I really am. Now, it seemed crazy, but the more the bride thought about it, the more she liked the idea of going ahead with the party. Ten years before, the same woman had been living in a homeless shelter. She'd gotten back on her feet. She found a good job. She set aside a sizable nest egg. Now she had this wild notion of using her savings to treat the down and outs of Boston to a night on the town. So in June of 1990, the Hyatt Hotel in downtown Boston hosted a party such as it had never seen before. The hostess changed the menu to boneless chicken in honor of the groom. (laughs) I like that. She sent invitations to rescue missions and homeless shelters. That warm summer night, people who were used to holding cardboard signs dined instead on chicken cordon bleu. Hyatt waiters in tuxedos served hors d'oeuvres to senior citizens propped up by crutches and aluminum walkers. Bag ladies, vagrants, and addicts took one night off from the hard life on the sidewalks outside and instead ate chocolate wedding cake and danced to big band melodies late into the night. If that's not a picture of heaven, I don't know what is. My friends, everyone is welcome to God's party. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter who you've been. He will wash you clean in the precious blood of Christ if you would but come to him. Turn from your sin. Turn from your pride. Turn from your rebellion. Turn from the lusts of your flesh, the lusts of your eyes, and the pride of life, and turn to your God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Because amazingly, some of those, many of those who are invited, most of those who are invited refuse to come. So I want to ask you this morning, have you responded to the invitation of your Heavenly Father? Have you forsaken this world, turned from your sin and turned to him by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone? Are you prepared for the coming of your bridegroom? Are you longing to meet your king face to face? Are you longing to see him and be with him? Are you longing for this celebratory feast, this this celebration? Are you ready to give him thanks? forever and ever for the tremendous sacrifice that he made to call you his own. Are you ready? I pray and trust that you are. I want to invite the choir back up uh, to lead us in musical worship here before we have a feast of our own. Again, everyone is invited to this one as well, so please pray with me as, as they come up to lead us.
Our Heavenly Father, we, we do just thank you so much for this invitation to your eternal celebration and everlasting celebration. And we have much to celebrate. We celebrate our King. We celebrate what he's done for us, the sacrifice that he made for us. We, we celebrate that you have saved us by your amazing grace alone. We celebrate that you have given us your scriptures, like the one today, even today, that points to Christ, that shows us the reality of this coming King. We long to be in your presence, Lord. We long to see you face to face. In the meantime, we uh, offer up this musical worship to you, and uh, we just thank you in the name of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.